These transmissions indicate some intelligent life. Let us move in for a closer look. This is the story of a young, pretty woman in the later half of the 19th century who oddly had no desire to get married, have kids, or run a household. She had the nerve to want a career of her own and have the same opportunities only given to men. She became a pioneering reformed-minded journalist who exposed injustice and corruption in American society. She was a muckraker who did many amazing things, including a lone journey around the world. Born Elizabeth Jane Cochran, most know her as Nellie Bly. And today I have part one of her story on the 211th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Good Sunday morning to you. My name is Jeff, and for the next half an hour or so, I'll be your storyteller. For those new to Coffee with Jeff, my name is Jeff, and for about a week or so, I research a topic that I would personally like to know more about, and then I write it into a hopefully engaging story that I turn into a podcast. At least that's the idea. So I hope life is treating you well. Um... Look, I have to admit something. I'm a bit angry right now. You know, last Saturday was Help Jeff Rake Leaves Day, and um, no one showed up, so I had to rake all my own leaves. uh, Anyway, so today's story is the type of tale I love to tell. Now, to be honest, I had never heard of Nellie Bly, much to my own embarrassment. But I do this thing on Facebook every day. It's a two-minute video on events that happened on that day in history, and When I was doing the one for November 14th, I came across the story of a woman who began a trip around the world all by herself in 1889. That alone piqued my interest. So I looked up Nellie Bly and read the Wikipedia page, and I knew almost instantly that would be the subject of my next podcast. In fact, it's going to be the subject of my next two podcasts. Now, before I get started, um, a little update on the show. The episode in two weeks will be my last episode for this year. I always take December off, but that doesn't mean there won't be podcasts. I'm hoping that a few of my friends could fill in for me on December 12th and December 26th. Now, I can't guarantee that. Everybody's busy over the holidays and whatnot. So if, um, for one reason or another, my friends can't, then I'll, um, I'll run some old episodes that aren't available right now. I've been doing this for six years. Anyway, let's get to the story of an amazing person who lived in the 19th century. As you may know, March is Women's History Month, and in this week's Pittsburgh History Month, we are paying tribute to a pioneer in journalism born right here in western Pennsylvania. If we told you her name was Elizabeth Jane Cochran, you may not know who she is, but if we told you her pen name, you may. In 1888, a 24-year-old female reporter named Nellie Bly had an idea. She wanted to attempt the fictional trip of Phineas Fogg in Jules Verne's 1873 novel Around the World in 80 Days, and then write about her adventures for the newspaper she worked for. It would be impossible for you to do it, her publisher told her. In the first place, you are a woman, and you would need a protector. 
And even if it were possible for you to travel alone, you would need to carry so much baggage that it would detain you in making rapid changes. Besides, you speak nothing but English, so there's no use talking about it. No one but a man can do this. Nellie responded, Very well. Start the man, and I'll start the same day for some other newspaper and beat him. Eventually, the publisher agreed, and Nellie Bly, a woman on her own, began a trip around the world. Her adventures were followed closely by the public, yet the global expedition was nothing compared to the journey of Nellie Bly's life, a journey that began in 1864. Nellie Bly was born Elizabeth Jane Cochran in the town of Cochran Mills, Pennsylvania on May 5, 1864. The city was named after her father, Michael Cochran. He was the son of Irish settlers who came to the area in the early 19th century. He was a very successful politician and judge who made a lot of money in land deals. He was described as broad-minded and high-principled, a gentleman cultured and polished. Elizabeth Jane was his 13th child. He had 10 from a previous marriage, a wife who had passed away, and the next three were from his second wife, Mary Jane. Of the 14 children, Elizabeth seemed to stand out from the rest, most likely from the encouragement of her mother. Rather than dressing her in typical dull grays and browns of the time, Elizabeth wore a lot of bright colors, including pink, which became her favorite color. Eventually, people started calling her Pink or Pinky. Mary Jane taught her daughter from an early age how to attract attention and enjoy it. When she was five, the family moved to a new, larger house in the neighboring town of Apollo. Judge Michael Cochran bought three acres of prime land for his family to enjoy. There were six in the home, as many of the older children had moved on. They had a cow, a horse, and a couple of dogs. Soon, Pinky had a younger brother, Harry. Pinky loved her father, and life was good. But then her father took ill. Michael Cochran died on July 19, 1879. The family was stunned and saddened. And things were made worse when it was discovered that he did not leave a will. It was less than two months after he was buried that his oldest son from his first marriage filed a petition demanding an inquest to determine the division of his wealth. The family members all ended up in court to sort the matter out. The court ordered that Michael's property was to be sold, auctioned off, including the new house, a third of the money going to Mary Jane and the rest to be divided among the 14 children. Mary Jane would get a small, regular income to provide for her five kids, and the kids' money would go into a fund until they were adults. Now with the large home gone, Mary Jane and the kids found a smaller, more modest house. It was a terrible time, not only dealing with the death of a beloved husband and father, but also losing the life they had become accustomed to. And one could only imagine the hard feelings now between Mary Jane and the kids from Michael Cochran's first family. But Mary Jane did her best to provide for the kids, making sure they could still do things like take piano lessons, something she thought was essential. The school for the children was just a short walk from the house, and although Pink wasn't an outstanding student, she did enjoy reading. She was considered a wild child who was known to act out, which might have been her way of dealing with all she had been through. At school, the boys gave her a new nickname, Lizzie, a name she hated her whole life. 
Twice married and twice widowed, now raising five kids on a limited income, finding a partner seemed like a logical thing for Mary Jane. So, two and a half years after Michael's death, Pinky's mother remarried. Unfortunately, her new husband, John Jackson Ford, was an abusive alcoholic who was known to go into angry rages, both in private and public. He had hit and threatened Mary Jane more than once, even pulling a gun on her and threatening her life. She began to live in constant fear. The stories of his abuse are many, stories that I won't go into here, but one could only imagine the damage it did to Pinky. She was nine when they met, and fourteen when the marriage ended. After five years, Mary Jane could take no more, and she filed for divorce. That took a lot of courage, as divorce was not common back in the 19th century. Luckily, she had a lot of friends and neighbors to testify in her behalf. The youthful 14-year-old Pink was called onto the stand. She told the judge, Ford has been generally drunk since they were married. When drunk, he's very cross, and cross when sober. I have seen Mother vexed on account of his swearing and bad names, and I've seen her cry. Ford threatened to do Mother harm. Mother is afraid of him. In her testimony, she went on to describe his horrible abuse. She signed the testimony, Pinky E.J. Cochran. It had been a difficult eight years for the young girl, losing her dad, her home, and then dealing with her mother's abusive relationship. All this gave Pinky an unflinching self-reliance. She was determined to find a way to make a living and to give her mother financial and emotional security so they would never have to depend on a man like Ford again. She thought a schoolteacher would be a good idea, one of the few career choices offered women at the time. In September 1879, the 15-year-old entered a three-year program at the State Normal School in Indiana, Pennsylvania, a school which is now Indiana University of Pennsylvania. Her first decision when starting school was to give up her nickname as she wanted to portray herself as more sophisticated. She was no longer Pinky Cochran. She was now Elizabeth J. Cochran, and she even added an E at the end of her last name in order to make it more distinguished. Her mother and siblings took up the new spelling as well. But her time at school was short-lived. Her banker initially told her that the money set aside for her would cover three years, which was about $200 a year. But after the first year, the money was gone. She sued the banker for mismanagement of her funds, but eventually dropped the case. The whole incident upset her so much that she didn't even return to college to take her final exams. In 1880, the whole family moved to Pittsburgh, which at the time was the 12th largest city in the USA. They ended up settling in the suburban town of Allegheny. The family members did various jobs to get by, and Mary Jane took in boarders. By this time, Elizabeth was 16, which in those days was considered an age that most young women began to think of marriage. But Elizabeth showed no interest. Her brothers and sisters were soon getting married and having children, and Elizabeth became known as Aunt Pink. And she took her position as aunt with great seriousness, and her nieces and nephews adored her. Not much is known about her life over the next few years. It is assumed that she was always financially strapped and found it hard to find suitable employment. She might have tried things like tutoring, nannying, and perhaps bookkeeping. Of course, her brothers, who were less educated, were able to find good white-collar positions. 
Her sense of injustice over the treatment of women continued to grow. And then in 1885, life changed for the 20-year-old Elizabeth after she began taking notice of a series of articles in a local newspaper. She was an avid reader of a section called The Quiet Observer in the Pittsburgh Dispatch by Aramis Wilson. Wilson's column was known for its homely wisdom and keen human sympathy. A couple of articles caught her attention. The first was called Women's Sphere, and it was in response to the growing suffragette movement. It was written with a staunchy traditional sexist view. According to Aramis Wilson, women should strive to make her home a little paradise, herself playing the part of angel. A woman's sphere, he stated, is defined by a single word, home. Another article was in response to a father who had written to Wilson about what to do with his five unmarried daughters, who ranged from the age of 18 to 26. Wilson's opinion was that it was up to parents to prepare their girls to be homemakers, the only job suitable for women. They should learn to spin, sew, cook, and clean house to perfection. He actually wrote this. In China and other old countries, they kill girl babies and sell them as slaves because they can make no good use of them. Who knows, this country may have to resort to this sometime, say a few thousand years hence. Of course, this caused quite a stir, and many female writers took offense. Many began to write rebuttals, which was probably Wilson's intention in the first place, to stir things up as the suffragette movement started to take shape. The Pittsburgh Dispatch received a long, angry letter from one reader. It was from a woman who had watched her mother twice depend on a man, only to be let down each time. The writer was definitely upset by Wilson's words, and it was signed Lonely Orphan Girl, without a real name or address. The newspaper editor, George Madden, was impressed by Little Orphan Girl's passionate, well-written arguments. He took the letter to Wilson and it was Wilson's idea that they should put a note in the paper. The note, published on January 17, 1885, said, If the writer of this communication signed Lonely Orphan Girl will send her name and address to this office, merely as a guarantee of good faith, she will confer a favor and receive the information she desires. Of course, Little Orphan Girl was Elizabeth Jane Cochran, who, rather than writing back, traveled to the paper in person. Wilson later described her as a little shy girl, breathless from climbing four flights of dispatch building stairs. When she arrived, she was terrified, as she expected to find a little old mean bearded man. But Madden, who was young and friendly, put her at ease. I admit, I was slightly frightened when I entered the building, but upon meeting Mr. Madden, my mind was incredibly eased. He openly discussed my concerns with me and suggested that I write my own article for the dispatch on the women's sphere. Her first article was published on January 25, 1885. It was on page 11 and called The Girl Puzzle. It was compelling and compassionate, a style that would become her trademark. She urged readers to consider the plight of widows and unmarried girls who were not blessed with great beauty, talent, or wealth. It was important, she said, that these ladies have an opportunity to make a living. Let a youth start as an errand boy and he will work his way up until he is one of the firm. Girls are just as smart, a great deal quicker to learn. Why can they not do the same? She also insisted that women be hired in the same jobs as men and get paid the same. And I think that battle still is being fought today. 
She began to write on subjects like divorce, which was very controversial at the time, city female factory workers, and Pittsburgh's poor working woman society lives. Initially, she signed her articles Orphan Girl, but soon it was decided she needed a pen name, as very few newspaper authors used their proper name. At one point, as George was rushing one of her stories to print, he yelled for suggestions. Someone yelled out, Nellie Bly, which was the name of a popular song 35 years ago. George liked the idea and used it, but changed Nellie's spelling from N-E-L-L-Y to N-E-L-L-I-E. Elizabeth Jane Cochran, now Nellie Bly, was earning $5 a week as a columnist. She was praised for her work, but as time went on, she began to be given assignments such as gardening, social news, arts and entertainment. She began to get a bit dissatisfied, so after a couple of years, she quit and began life as a freelance writer. Nellie was always up for new adventures, so when she met a group of people from Mexico and thought about how little people of the U.S. knew of their southern neighbors, she decided to take a trip. She was only 21 years old and didn't speak Spanish when she decided to head to Mexico. At first, George Madden tried to talk her out of it, but the strong-willed lady was going regardless. George agreed to publish the article she wrote of her adventure. With her mother, she traveled around and wrote about what she saw. But her honesty got her into trouble with the Mexican government as they didn't like what she was writing. It violated their censorship laws. She returned after they threatened to arrest her. While in Mexico, she had to be careful about what she wrote, but now back in Pittsburgh, she could write the truth about what she had witnessed. To say libelous things is as dangerous as to write them. I had some regard for my health, and a Mexican jail is the last desirable abode on the face of the earth, so some care was exercised in the selection of topics while we were inside their gates. She called the Mexican government the worst monarchy in existence, and over the next few months wrote vivid tales of Mexican censorship and corruption. Once that was done, she began looking for more excitement, so in 1887 she traveled to New York, the largest new city in the world. Unable to find a job and running out of money, she convinced George back at the Pittsburgh Dispatch to publish articles about women's fashion and other aspects of New York life. She began to write about her attempts to find work and the sexism she encountered, like one man who told her that he thought men reported stories more accurately, that women couldn't help but exaggerate. Another told her that it was improper for a woman to cover crime or scandals and that having a woman in the office made men feel uncomfortable. Another said that women are only good for certain types of stories like fashion or society events. What they are fitted for is so limited, he told her. A man is of far greater service as a reporter. Nellie's reputation grew with each story she published and her success led to a meeting with Colonel Cockerell at New York's World Newspaper. The publisher of The World was none other than Joseph Pulitzer. The World was the most successful, most imitated newspaper in the country. They had a reputation for lurid stories and scandals. It was for this paper that Nellie got her most dangerous assignment of her life, to investigate the alleged abuse at the Women's Lunatic Asylum on Blackwell's Island in New York. Nellie would have to go undercover. A doctor would have to declare her insane so that she would be committed to the asylum. And although nervous, she agreed. She later wrote, I never in my life turned back from a course I started upon. 
Nellie took on a new name, Nellie Brown. She spent hours in front of a mirror practicing her crazy look with jerky facial expressions and intense stares. Wandering down 2nd Avenue in old, ragged clothing, she arrived at Matron Irene Standard's Temporary Home for Females. For 30 cents a night, she was able to get a room, all the while keeping a startled look on her face. She refused to sleep and told people that headaches made her forget things. At the home, she overheard one woman saying, I'm afraid to sleep with such a crazy being in the house. And another added, She will murder us before morning. The following morning, one woman showed up with two police officers and she was taken away. A judge thought she had been drugged and left to wander the streets. As he talked, Nellie covered her face with a handkerchief so that her slight laughter wouldn't be detected. He ordered her to be taken to Bellevue Hospital for examination. At Bellevue Hospital, she acted confused as they asked her questions and told them that she was from the island of Cuba. Newspapers were called in, hoping that the publicity of this pretty 112-pound, 5-foot-5-inch woman would help someone recognize her. The Sun ran the story with the headline, Who is this insane girl? The Sun, as well as other papers, began to write stories. After all, a pretty young, mysterious, crazy woman is just the kind of thing they love to report. The doctor said she was positively demented and sent her to the asylum. Nellie would spend the next 10 days within its walls. After 10 days, the world sent her attorney to arrange for her release. Two days later, Nellie began to write a series of articles, and what she had to say shocked the world. She wrote of wretched food, the lack of salt, too little warm clothing, and freezing cold baths. My teeth chattered, and my limbs were goose-fleshed and blue with cold. Suddenly, I got one after the other, three buckets of water over my head, ice-cold water, too, into my eyes, my ears, my nose, and my mouth. I think I experienced some of the sensations of a drowning person as they dragged me, gasping, shivering, and quaking from the tub. For once, I did look insane. I caught a glance of the indescribable look on the faces of my companions who had witnessed my fate and knew theirs was surely following. The nurses, she would tell, behaved obnoxiously and abusively, telling patients to shut up and beating them if they did not. The food consisted of gruel broth, spoiled beef, bread that was little more than dried dough, and dirty, undrinkable water. The dangerous patients were tied together with rope. The patients were made to sit for much of the day on hard benches with scant protection from the cold. Waste was all around the eating places. Rats crawled all over the hospital. Of the effects of her experience, she wrote, What, accepting torture, would produce insanity quicker than this treatment? Here is a class of women sent to be cured. I would like the expert physicians who are condemning me for my action, which has proven their ability to take a perfectly sane and healthy woman, shut her up, and make her sit from 6 a.m. until 8 p.m. on straight-backed benches. Do not allow her to talk or move during these hours. Give her no reading, and let her know nothing of the world or its doings. Give her bad food and harsh treatment, and see how long it will take to make her insane." Two months would make her a mental and physical wreck. Strangely, while many papers which reported on the insane woman felt embarrassed about being fooled and dropped the story, the Sun embraced the story and attempted to make it their own. 
before Nellie's second installment was published, they had their own account. They looked at medical reports and interviewed the asylum's staff. Of her release, she wrote, I left the insane ward with pleasure and regret, pleasure that I was once more able to enjoy the free breath of heaven, regret that I could not have brought with me some of the unfortunate women who lived and suffered with me, and who, I am convinced, are just as sane as I was and am now myself. Pulitzer would say he was very pleased with his very bright and very plucky new staff member, and he awarded her with a very handsome check. She is well-educated, he said, and thoroughly understands the profession which she has chosen. She has a great future before her. After her two-part story was published on October 9th and October 16th, 1887, and although the doctors, nurses, and staff at the asylum refuted her claims, improvements began almost immediately. Nellie and a group of investigators would return a few months later and noted that the food was better and the conditions were more sanitary. New York leaders increased the annual budget for hospitals and prisons with at least $50,000 more to the Women's Asylum at Blackwell's Island. Her adventures would be published in a book form called Ten Days in a Madhouse by Nellie Bly. Now, as a full-time worker at The World, she began other successful stunt assignments, such as posing as a maid for a story on how employment agencies treat job seekers, and as an unwed mother on how people sold unwanted babies. Once in a while, she would take a break from the more serious stories and do things like writing about her experiences taking ballet lessons. Other stories include exposing fake hypnotists and lobbyists who bribe state officials to get bills passed. In 1889, she proposed something even more impressive. She wanted to travel around the world in 80 days just like Jules Verne's Phineas Fogg. And that's where we'll pick up the story in part two in the next episode. Women are being murdered. Nellie Bly, I'd like to introduce you to our publisher, Joseph Pulitzer. It is a great honor. The World Newspaper would like you to infiltrate Blackwell's Island Lunatic Asylum for Women. I will teach myself to be mad. <laughs> Absolutely everyone must believe I am insane. How will you get me out after I once get in? I do not know. Your very life may be threatened. This is not a place that you want to wait long if you don't need to be here. Nelly Brown! The doctor wants you. I'm Superintendent Dent. How are you today? Blackwells will one day be a utopian example of the most advanced treatment of the insane. A little bit before I go. First of all, thanks to Nancy Fry for playing the part of Nellie Bly. Hopefully she'll be nice again in two weeks and perform the part again. And Nancy, I'll try to send you the script a little earlier this time so you have more time to prepare. Now, there are a couple of photos of Nellie out there. The most popular one is where she's staring right at the camera. If you search Nellie Bly, you'll see it. It's a remarkable photo. And you know, I can't explain it, but I had the same feeling looking at this photo as I did when I looked at one of Rosalind Franklin a while back when I did her story. If I didn't know anything about either of these two women, I would look at the photograph and think, there's an intelligent and confident person behind those eyes. Maybe it's just me. I don't know. Anyway, there's a couple of good books about Nellie out there. I used two for much of today's story. The first one is Nellie Bly, Daredevil Reporter Feminist by Brooke Kroger, and Bylines, a photobiography of Nellie Bly by Sue Macy. And all of Nellie's books are all in print as well. 
10 days in a madhouse, 6 months in Mexico, around the world in 72 days, undercover, reporting for the New York World 1887 to 1894, and a couple of others. All, I'm sure, good reading. Anyway, how about the ending credits? You've been listening to Coffee with Jeff, a Zeus Brothers Entertainment podcast. You know, these shows take money to produce, and if you can help me out, I'd be forever grateful. You can just go to my website, which is coffeewithjeff.com, and there's a link there to my Patreon page. And if you can't do that, then you know what? You can tell your friends about it, and that would be a big help. You can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. You can follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is coffeewithjeff. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that you're invited to join. You can find links to any of these at the Coffee with Jeff website. I want to thank Nancy Fry for playing Nellie Bly, my wife of 36 years for being my wife of 36 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to all those that repost this on social media. You have a special place in my heart. Take care, stay healthy, and I'll be back in two weeks with one final show for the year. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some cream, didn't like it, now he never looks back. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Met a girl from Bean Town. Jeff was always hanging around. She drank tea, but that was okay. She was the dawn of Jeff's new day. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. More coffee with Jeff. Years go by and life's filled with change. Sometimes your plans get rearranged. He's seen it all and he's weathered it too. So Jeff wants to have some coffee with you. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. More coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Yeah.